Welcome to Tough Cookie Talks. I'm your host, Jenna Josephowski, but you can call me Jenna J. I'm a semi-retired professional dancer, dance teacher and yoga teacher, turned certified personal trainer and kettlebell instructor who helps active women learn to lift and get strong with equal parts challenge and compassion. After years of working in the fitness industry, I got sick and tired of watching people, including myself, run themselves into the ground trying to uphold the narrow-minded image of what our culture sees as healthy and fit. But instead of giving it all up, I decided that I'd rather change the game, call out the BS, extract the good, and help others learn to use movement as a way to build themselves up rather than tear themselves down. On this podcast, we'll explore the intersection of fitness and anti-diet culture and all the gray areas in between. We'll let go of shoulds and judgment and dig into tough conversations with curiosity. Things get pretty spicy around here. So grab your headphones and let's do this. Hey friends, welcome to Tough Cookie Talks. I'm super excited to share today's podcast interview, but before we get into it, I'm going to keep it real with you. It is summertime in my neighborhood. And as I am back in my she shed in my backyard recording in the summer for the first time, I am experiencing a new set of challenges, which is this. It's hot and stuffy in here. And so I need to crack a window or door. And everybody is mowing their lawn right now. And the birds are so loud. They're chirping so loud. I love them, but they're so loud. So if you can hear that, sorry not sorry. Uh, a lot of people say to record podcasts in their closet. I don't want to be in my closet. I don't want to. I don't feel like it. So anyway, um, enjoy the birds and the ambiance of the lawnmowers, if you can hear it. Ah, Today, we are talking to Dr. Kate Brown, and I am so excited for this conversation. Kate Brown teaches people and organizations how to tell stories that change the world for good. She's a professor of digital rhetorics and gender studies and the author of the first academic book on the Golden Girls. The Golden Girls. How cool is that? Kate's writing on storytelling as a wellness habit has appeared in Runner's World, Refinery29, and Self Magazine. You can follow her on social at Dr. Kate Brown, um, and Brown has an E on the end of it. But I knew that Kate was somebody that I wanted to bring on the podcast because in light of storytelling, Kate tells the best stories. I originally met her a few years back through our affiliation with Body Positive Fitness Alliance. And through that, I discovered that Kate had done a TED Talk. Maybe I'll link to that in the show notes as well. In her TED Talk, she shared her personal story with um, fitness and growing up as a kid who was put on diets at a young age and how she grew into an adult who really enjoys working out. But the most interesting thing about this and what I wanted to bring her to talk about today was storytelling um, and how we share stories about fitness and how that leads us to perceive ourselves and our bodies. On her TED Talk, she talked a lot about Fitspo, which if you're not familiar with what I'm talking about, whew, you are lucky. Uh, Fitspo is all the fitness garbage, like the before and after photos and the like shamey motivational quotes and like the now excuses and blah, blah, blah. Um, anyway, the similarities between that and the freak show, meaning, um, like the sideshows that they would have at the circus, uh, back in the day. And I found these parallels really fascinating. And the way that she tells stories about all of this is probably one of the most interesting interviews I've ever done. So now that I've hyped this thing up, let's go talk to Kate. Hey, Kate, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, so great to be here with you today. I'm thrilled. I'm so excited to have you here. For those of you that don't know, Kate, I think is one of the most interesting people to talk about when it comes to like diet culture related stuff. Um, because you're just so well researched. Um, it, I've learned so many interesting things from just talking to you over the years. So I can't wait for you to share, um, 
yeah, just a little bit of everything. But first, do you want to tell everybody who you are and what you do and, and all of that? Well, thank you for saying so. I'm glad to hear that. And I hope some of the things that I say today can bring that research and some, that's what researchers do, right? We go and we dig into something to share with other people. So to teach that is really fun and exciting. Uh, So I'm Kate Brown and I am a storytelling researcher and my main focus is around stories of before and after. Mostly that comes in through diet culture because that's the primary way we understand before and after success stories. And over the years, my research has taken me from the freak show and figuring out how they promoted those acts all the way to what I call sort of a tin foil hat theory of how diet culture came to be. And now I do different kinds of storytelling research about fitness and fitness marketing and just those stories we tell about how bodies are supposed to be and how those stories actually impact the choices that we make every day. So I can't wait to hear, first of all, I want to hear your, your tinfoil hat story at some point that needs to happen. But I think one of the things, um, when I first met you, I met you through body positive fitness Alliance and somehow through meeting you through there, I realized that you had done a Ted talk and mm-hmm. I remembered listening to your Ted talk and it was so wonderful. And you told your story, um, just about your like childhood, like kind of negative experience with fitness. Um, and then realizing as an adult later that you actually enjoyed it, but then you also started talking about like how Fitzbo, uh, kind of ties in with like freak shows. And I just feel like the people need to know about all of it. So where would you like to start? Well, I'll start with defining freak show. Cause I think that it freaks a lot of people out to start yeah. talking about it, or you're not quite sure what it is. And when we're talking, when I'm talking about a freak show, I actually mean the entertainment uh, the type of entertainment that we typically associate with the circus. And that's, okay. that is what I'm talking about. And the freak show was, and sometimes you'll hear it referred to as a side show because it was literally to the side of the circus and regular everyday people with families and people going to see the show would go to the circus tent. And then other folks who wanted to see the, the freakery, they wanted to see something unusual. They would actually go to the sideshow tent or the circus tent. So it was a separate thing from the main entertainment, which I think is already fascinating because the proprietary family, you know, protect the women and children thing is mm-hmm. happening in the circus tent. And now you've got something that's illicit or undesirable or strange or unusual happening somewhere else. So that's, that's where I started researching bodies. And the more I studied the freak show and how they promoted different kinds of bodies, the more Mm -hmm. interested I became in the actual story. Cause there's a myth about the freak show that it exploited disabled people or it Mm -hmm. exploited difference in, in a terrible way. And it did, I'm not, I'm not here to argue. I'm not a freak show apologist, Uh absolutely exploitation. And there were bad practices all around, but a lot of those acts were made up. Like if you just Google freak show pictures, I would guess that probably 60 to 70% of them are just like people in chicken suits, <laughs> There's, you know, or they, and they didn't even have anything wrong with their body that was unusual or a disability. It was just like, well, I wanted to be in the freak show. So I shaved my head and put on a beard. Oh, oh, interesting. So when I started exercising in, as an adult for fun, <laughs> I, I saw the same kinds of things happening in fitness advertisement as I did in the freak show, which is to say that it's made up, you know, I I go to the gym and I just see regular everyday people. I don't see the people in the, you know, like the guys with no shirts and they're sweaty and they're, they're doing, I can't even remember the name of the exercise. You'll have to show your expertise here. The one where you like kneel on the bench and pull like was that a lat pull I like a know. like a row a row yeah yeah <laughs> kate brown fitness expert <laughs> <laughs> yeah they're, they're not like doing hundreds of those or whatever i don't know what they're doing but it's just regular everyday people but when you look at the advertisements they're promoting a certain kind of ideal body uh or they're showing you know fat people or disabled people 
trying to overcome their bodies through exercise. And those two extremes were exactly the same as we saw in the freak show. You had people who were either promoted as like overcoming their disability or overcoming a status in life, uh, kings, queens, Jojo, uh, not Jojo the dog face boy, but you know, the, they would have little people acts and they'd all be countess and king and princess and duchess. Or you would have the ones that were probably the most exploitative, which were, you know, the, the man with no arms and no legs rolling a cigarette, like, Oh, what a weird thing to see and do. So these extremes were happening too. And so that's what my Ted talk is all about. And it it really made me think about how I believed this story that I heard about my body and people who have bodies like mine and what we're capable of and Mm. what would happen if we suspended that story for a moment and made choices about how to live our lives and how to, to do fitness, how to exercise in a way that felt good instead of conforming to the story, which was really harmful for me. Yeah. And can you tell us a little bit more about that story that you internalized for yourself? Because I think a lot of people here can very likely relate to that. Yeah. So I was put on Weight Watchers um, by my pediatrician and parents. And I always start this story by saying, you know, my parents were doing the best they could. They were trying to follow the advice of my pediatrician and they were just as impacted and in many ways continue to be impacted by diet culture the same way uh, that I was. So there's no, there's no blame there for my parents putting me on Weight Watchers, but this, uh, I was being bullied in school and my pediatrician said, well, she should lose weight. So she had to sign a special permission slip so that I was, I was almost 10 actually. She had to sign a special permission slip because you couldn't be on Weight Watchers in 1993 unless you were 10. Wow, 10. Yeah, 10 years old, I'm on Weight Watchers and that that story just it just permeates that you're not good enough until exercise is something you do for punishment. Uh you have to exercise and then the, and then this like weird math which I've been thinking a lot about lately and how it still imp- impacts the choices I make about health and fitness, but the idea that you use exercise as a uh, an income system, almost like you have to do so much exercise in order to get the calories back in order mm-hmm. to so very transactional, very punishment oriented. That's the story that I heard about exercise. And of course my body, you know, as soon as you get a goal weight, that's a story that where you are right now is not okay. Mm-hmm. So you spend however long you're dieting or trying to get to that goal weight in pursuit of a story that's going to make you happier, better, more acceptable, more loved. And I, I dieted on and off, probably more on than off from 10 to about 20. No, not even, it was after my, my son was born from 10 to about 31. Mm, That sounds so familiar. Yeah. Solid decades and formative years, um, honing the skills to try to live out the story. Damn. Yeah. And I know that's familiar and some people are more successful at, at meeting it than I was. I mean, I was kind of, you know, up and down weight, what weight wise, like we all are, but I never, no matter how much weight I lost, I never got to that point where it was like, okay, at least right now I'm okay. <laughs> doesn't matter if I gain weight or not. It's, at this moment I did it. So I've always sort of lived with the, the specter of your body is not okay. Yeah. And when it comes to before and after photos, there's something that I think of a lot, um, that I think kind of ties in with like the, it's all made up. Um, and there are two things that are coming to mind. Number one is nobody is ever talking about what happens after the after. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, there are not nearly enough stories told about that. And I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of guilt and shame that's tied up in what happens in the after the after. So we don't talk about it. Um, and then the other thing that I think is not talked about enough is you can talk about like reaching like the goal weight. And I think in many cases, it's never good enough, whether society tells, you, no, you're still not good enough or internally, you still don't feel like you're good enough. Mm. Yeah, definitely a moment of pause there and acknowledgement of how many people are walking around in this moment with that idea of not good enough. And 
even in the realization that the story might be harmful, you still can't escape it. It's still not enough or too much, or it's unsatisfying in some way. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. And when you talk about the freak show being made up like the, you know, the guy that like shaves his head and, you know, grows a beard and uh, puts on a chicken suit or whatever, I can't help but think about how a lot of Fitzpo is very much made up. Like the people that are posing for these like fitness model posts or whatever, where they're like sweaty and glistening. Um, a lot of that is like dieted down to in such a way that that's not actually how they like eat or work out in real life to maintain that body in a way that's not actually helpful in the first place. And it's a lot of strategic posing and lighting. What are your thoughts on that? I don't know who has time for strategic posing and lighting. I definitely don't. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like a lot of energy, Uh, but yeah. And there's a, there is for anybody going through this process or this journey of retelling the stories or rewriting the stories. I want to acknowledge that there is a lot of grief can be a lot of grief around that because in order to accept that the story is made up, you also have to accept that everything you did before that to try and meet the story didn't work, was never going to work, was also a lie. Yeah. And that that keeps a lot of people from change because that's such a shift, you know, to accept that there's no point in me reaching my goal weight because I'm not going to be happier. I'm not going to be healthier necessarily. I'm not going to be more fulfilled. I'm not going to, you know, suddenly get a partner and a family and whatever else I was supposed to get. It's such an abandonment of that future that you might've imagined for yourself. Yeah. And so how do you think the stories that the stories that we tell the stories that are told, like the stories that we hear the most kind of play into that narrative that we have for ourselves. Because I think a lot of us for a long time and a lot of people still think to themselves that like somehow they're going to be the exception. And maybe they know like deep down, like diets don't work for like 99.9% of people or whatever the statistic is. Um, but they somehow think that they're going to be the special one. And that this next thing that they start is going to be the thing. What do you think feeds into that? Mm. Well, all of these products and services that are supposed to deliver the after to us, Mm -hmm. they all promise this bright future, which we all have an idea of what that looks like. I've been rattling them off, you know, Mm -hmm. all that. Um, and, and to abandon that point is like, and so if you're going to be the exception to that, you have to believe that that future is available to you in only this way. This is the only way that you're going to get that. And so that exceptionalism is, is something that I would ask someone to reflect on, you know, what does come after? Think about the hero's journey. That's the, the classic storytelling trope. If you've never heard of the hero's journey before, just think of any Disney movie, any superhero movie that you've ever seen. Uh It's all about leaving home, going through some kind of change and returning a changed person. Uh And I think that's what the before and after story wants from us. It wants us to believe that we will go through this journey and return changed. But even in the Disney movies and the superhero movies, we don't know what happens after. We don't know what happens to that person after they've returned home changed. Did they lose all their friends because they got a new lease on life? Did they uh, ultimately have to move because it wasn't sustainable anymore? Like the future that they thought they were going to have, did they actually get it? Yeah. And so that's what I would, for that exceptionalism think too, like, what is, what do you think is going to happen when you get there? Let's say you are the exception. Okay. It's going to work for you. You're in the 4% where this actually works Mm long-term. By the way, the, I think just as a recap, in case the listeners don't recognize when researchers talk about long-term weight loss success, they're talking over a span of 10 years, which might sound like a really long time, but isn't necessarily right. Like if you lose a bunch of weight when you're 20 Uh and you you maintain that until say a pregnancy or a life situation or whatever, you know, you may still be considered quote unquote, a success, 
for those 10 years, but now you've put your right back in failure. And I hate to use that language, but I know that that's the way a lot of people think about it. Yeah. Right. So, so long-term success does not necessarily even mean the rest of your life, but still let's say you are the exception. And this is something that you can maintain over the, the rest of your life. What's the reward? What do you get? Do you, do you achieve your happily ever after, you know, and that's a pretty big risk to take for a lot of the negatives that come with this constant pursuit of goal weight. Yeah. And do you know the exact statistic on that? Um, I'm asking you as the researcher and I realize that I'm putting you on the spot (laughs) right now. You may not, um, for like what percentages of people are actually able to maintain like a long-term weight loss. Yeah, it is. So if we're thinking about that, you know, eight to 10 year mark being long-term, the other thing to remember is that when they consider that a success, it's 10% of your starting weight. So if we do a little math here, like let's say, um, you know, I hate to give it a number. Everybody tends to go for 200, but I'll use myself right now, 230 pounds, which by the way, the fact that I can tell you how much I weigh at this exact moment is absolutely an artifact of diet culture. And I I think I'd like to talk at some point today about like how that's still impacting me, even though I dieted for over 10 or like how many ever years it was since I stopped. Um, so 10% of, and I'm terrible at math. This is why I'm a word doctor, not a math doctor, but, <laughs> um, two thirty, 10% of two thirty is 23 pounds. Uh, right. So let's say and you're, I, you're asking the girl who got a D for done and a D for diploma in math. So <laughs> I think that's it. That. Well, I I'm sorry for all the hate mail you're going to get for my bad math. Um, <laughs> but so 10% of that is 23 pounds. Okay. okay. If I go from 230 pounds to, I believe that would be 207 pounds. Okay. I am not a weight loss success story, right? That, that amount of weight is not going to put me into after I'm still going to be what, what clinicians and the medical system consider morbidly obese. But according to the research, if I mean, if I, if I go down to 207 pounds and maintain that for 10 years, I am a success. So even the research is a little bit misleading because if you go to your doctor, let's say that happens, you know, I go to my doctor 10 years from now and go, yeah, I lost uh, 23 pounds 10 years ago. I'm a super success. Right. And they're like, yeah, probably <laughs> there's, there's not, there's not a lot of, yeah. but if I went to a researcher and I said, yeah, this happened, I took a pill and I lost 23 pounds and I maintained it for 10 years. And they'll go, Oh, well, that pill is a super success, but nobody feels like a success. You need the you need the after story, the before and after where I'm happy and successful and thin and loved. And, and this is where I think like, like the storytelling can be really valuable because I think we associate, and this is what I base a lot of my coaching around. We associate all sorts of things with having a body that looks a certain kind of way. And that could be either the before or after you always hear, you know, like, Like somebody is like, oh, that person's fat and, and then rattles off a bunch of other like negative connotations that they assume go along with that. Mm -hmm. And I think the reverse can also be true. When we think about weight loss, we think that like all of these other positive things are going to come into our lives. And as a result of that, um, but in many cases, that's not necessarily true. And so if you're not paying attention to how you actually like want to feel and what kinds of things you actually want to have in your life, be that, you know, like, like feelings, goals, things that you do relationships, um, like anything and everything, if we're not paying attention to those things and, and going after those things directly, then we're missing the mark. And I think personally, as, as a fitness professional, like as a personal trainer, if we don't encourage our clients to get curious about what those deeper things are in their life, we might, they might get to be like one of those people that like reach their goal weight, but like, then what they get there and they realize that's not where they wanted to be at all. Is that making any kind of sense? It makes so much sense. And I'm thrilled that you brought that idea up because, you know, 
Ruby says, Kate, you're a storyteller. How, <laughs> and you told us all our stories are bad. How do we make new stories? That's exactly how. Getting curious about what you want, what you might want to feel, what that actually means. Uh, it's so important. And it's not something that you can necessarily do immediately. It's, it's going to take a little work and a little checking in with yourself and being honest with yourself, but it absolutely starts there because I would, uh, I don't want to say guarantee, but I'm, I feel pretty strongly that every person who has a goal weight actually has a goal emotion or a goal state of being. And that's what they want the goal weight to give them. And when it doesn't, it's a disaster. Yes. And, and you spend all this time and energy focusing on what am I going to eat? How am I going to exercise? Maybe, maybe also add in there. How am I going to feel? How do I feel? What is my goal for showing up to my health and fitness in a way that makes me feel good? And the, the change is, is uncomfortable. I'm not, I'm not saying it's all sunshines and puppies and rainbows, but uh -uh. You know, they're, they're, to accept all of those feelings in the process is so important. So if somebody said, you know, I have this goal, well, you probably do this in your coaching or when you're, you're taking on clients going through that process of what are your goals? Probably a lot of people come in with, well, I want to weigh this much. And as a trainer and as someone who is interested in people's holistic well-being, you have the skill to reflect back to them, you know, great. That, that sounds, that sounds like a goal. A lot of people have, what do you want to achieve when you get that goal or, There's... or like making it more of an action? Like, okay, that's a great goal. What's another one. And maybe dig a little deeper instead of just accepting that number as it it's. And, and I think that's where, that's where the disconnect comes for a lot of people. Um, and I think maybe a lot of other trainers too, when they hear me say that I don't coach intentional fat loss. Um, mm -hmm. and, it, and, and I think that can be like a little bit of a put off, but I'm like, no, no, listen, I'm not telling you that wanting this is wrong. Um, what I am saying is that if I don't ask you to dig deeper and ask why, then, and being really curious about what's behind that, then, then I'm doing you a disservice. And, yeah. and to go back to like all of the things that people, that people associate with that, um, like the ideas that people associate with weight loss, the story that we've told is like, lose weight and you'll be healthier lose weight and your blood pressure will go down, lose weight. And you will have an easier time hiking on vacation, but it's like, like, which of these things are you looking for? Right. Yeah. Yep. Is the, I think too, a different exercise is like, if there were another way to do that, to get that same results, mm -hmm. would you be as, as like hiking on vacation, you know? Yeah. And I think this is when you might be able to, um, work with folks on, like, if they say, I want to lose 10 pounds because so many knees stop hurting, or I want to lose 10 pounds so I can hike on vacation. It's like, well, what if I told you that increasing your core strength or upping your, you know, strength training to from zero to one day a week would get you that same goal. It's like, does that feel achievable? Because you're not you can't predict the future. You're no. not sure folks' bodies, right? You don't know what intentional fat loss, what's that going to mean for them. But you can promise that, you know, if you show up, we're going to work on your strength and you're going to see benefits from that. Without yeah. even promising what those benefits might be, but just know that you're a professional and you know that the, doing this action will get this kind of result. You can't yeah. predict that that's going to cause any kind of fat loss. It's, and I think it's unethical to, to even, kind of promise that it, it feels very, it feels very fake to me, but in thinking about, um, oh gosh, I just lost my train of thought there for a second in damn it, Kate. Oh no. <laughs> It'll come back to me. It'll come back to me. It will. Um, damn it. Maybe I had a really, it reminds me of that TikTok meme that's going around of like, what, what is a thing that's become so normalized, but is actually a scam? Yes, yes, like yes. When anyone says, 
lose 30 pounds by doing a thing like that idea that, that you can follow a diet or exercise program that will have a specific result, totally a scam. <laughs> well, okay. Yeah. 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 And that, all right. You helped me remember what I was going to okay. say now, which is that we have far less control over our body shape and size than we think we do. Um, and maybe you have stories about this, um, that you want to share personally, but it's, um, it's very wild to me when, and I know everybody's situation is different. When I think of the difference in my body shape and size, when I'm like super restrictive and obsessive Mm. and when I'm just a little bit more laid back and carefree, that difference is very minuscule. And a lot of, I think people in the fitness industry would come into, into this and be like, work out like me and you'll look like me, like just do this, this, and this, like, this is discipline. I'm like, nah, this is genetics. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's what this is. Well, you know, and there's like a little bit, there's a little bit of wiggle room in there. That's maybe within at least like my personal control, but not nearly as much as people think there is. What's your experience with that? Yeah, that's, that's definitely true. And, you know, in my, I I keep a picture. I try to use it for as many like cover photos of things on social media as I can, but it's basically a collage of me over the last 10 years. Yeah. It's the idea of it is to get away from that before and after ideology. It's like, nope, I'm, I've been all kinds of ways over the years and whatever way I am now may or may not be what it is in future. So I think you know, from my pregnancy 10, 10 years ago, oh my gosh. Um, you know, to now I would technically be considered a weight loss success story just by sheer numbers, but I'm still not like, according to the popular mythology, I am not. And I think that's really interesting because you can go through a range of, of weights and body shapes and sizes and, and one still not hit the target that you're supposed to, Mm -hmm. Um, but also not even conform to the story, which I think is fascinating, but it's after having my child and watching them grow, that really shows me how, how little control we have over a lot of things, because like me, um, he's nine years old and almost five feet tall. He and uh-huh. I wear the same size 10 shoe. Yeah. You know? He's 10. And I just think about my experience of being 10 and being told your body's not right. You need to lose weight. And I just see so many, I mean, not just the genetic, we look alike similarities, but mm-hmm. wow. If somebody had told me that, you know, people in my family grow really fast, I would have had a totally different experience with my body or that pregnancy would change my body in certain ways or that the heat and humidity changes body shape and size, or even perceive yourself, the clothes you wear like there. And some of it is an illusion. Like you can dress a certain way and look or do your makeup in a certain way, I guess, or some kind of body decoration if you don't wear makeup. Um, And even those temporary changes can affect how people perceive you and how you perceive yourself. So I think even in that way, we don't have a lot of control about how our body looks to others and that lived experience of being in that body. Like my body size right now is not significantly different than it has been in the last, I don't know how many years, but I know that when I take care of my health, both, you know, what I eat, how I exercise, how I take care of my emotional health, my spiritual health, that impacts the experience of living in my body. Uh which is so much more meaningful to me than how it looks. Yes. And those Kate are the stories that are not told enough. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm wondering what you think of this, because I think about the stories, the stories that I was told as a, um, like as a kid growing up in the nineties, um, yeah. And I just think of like the Delia's catalog. Um, oh yeah. Oh, like what an aspirational catalog for me. <laughs> like, 
Like just looking at those images or like, I remember I used to have all the magazine subscriptions to like teen and 17 and YM, like back in the day before social media was a thing. And like, even just the stories, those pictures told. Oh, that's so important. It, oh my gosh, the pictures. And that's why the before and after story does so much work is because it, it takes a lot of effort to tell a story in a way that isn't just a picture. But you can tell a before and after story with one photograph and it's a one person standing in a leg of pants. I know everything I need to know about this person, who they are, how hard they work, what their morality is like, how much they care for their family, like anything you could possibly extrapolate from somebody losing a lot of weight and, and the good and rightness of it from a single picture. Yeah. I don't know anything about their experience, but that, that picture and that the way of telling a before and after story is so codified in our consciousness of what it means to be a good person, that it's, it's so hard to, to break free from that. And this might be a good moment to describe to everybody what I'm talking about by a before and after success story and ways that that can show up in all kinds of ways. Yeah. A before and after success story, um, isn't just health and fitness, but it basically boils down to you were a certain kind of person before. So there's the subject of the story. It could be you or another person, but there was a certain way that you were before. And then there's a life-changing event or activity or journey. And then the after, so it's who you are after having gone through this experience. Mm -hmm. So it is a little bit different from the hero's journey. You know, the hero's journey, we see the problem. We see, we see the hero fight all their battles and, you know, come to a different understanding. We see all of that. And then they have their resolution in a before and after success story. We only really see the beginning and the end. Yeah. So if you think about any Um, and I know a lot, this is how it started for me is that when I was, when I was 10, (laughs) I would get a lot of inspiration by reading the success stories of other people. I mean, Mm. I would read the Weight Watchers success stories of, um, Vanessa Redgrave. There was a whole book about her journey. I have nothing in common with Vanessa Redgrave, except I wanted to lose weight. And so I was going to try and do everything she did to get this result. So yeah. I know a lot of people look to before and after success stories for inspiration. And if you can think back to anyone you've ever heard or read, you know, that it, descri- it first describes how awful things were. Mm-hmm. And in the case of weight loss, it's, I was sad. I was unhappy. I couldn't find any pants to wear. I couldn't buckle my seatbelt on an airplane. I had to get divorced. I was miserable and crying and eating everything all the time. And then they make a decision to lose weight. Mm-hmm. And that could be from just a personal revelation, a medical scare, um, somebody saying something, a mean comment, school's going to start in the fall. Do you ever read any of those like teen stories of weight loss? I, I feel like I probably did. I'm trying to remember, is there a specific book that you're thinking of right now? Oh, the, I read a lot of them as a, as a young, as a tween and teen, but my favorite one was if this is love, I'll take spaghetti. That is that a Judy Bloom book? No, but it's close. It's part of that like teen coming of age paperback genre. I feel like there was a Judy Bloom book that I read at some point. I mean, there was blubber blubber was a Judy Bloom book, but I don't remember if she ever actually loses a bunch of weight. I think that's why I didn't read that one as inspirational because she doesn't actually lose weight. Okay. I'm trying. I remember the title of that book. I'm trying to remember what happened in it. That one's a weird one. Cause yeah, we're going to get off on a tangent. (laughs) That's all right. She gets, she gets made fun of for uh, wearing a, um, basically a Halloween costume that is, I think it's called a, a Fletcher or a Felcher, which is a person who scrapes the whale blubber off the whale. It was a job and she thought it was interesting. So she dressed up. And so all the kids called her blubber after that. Oh, that's what I remember from this but yeah, there's all kinds of stories of teens, you know, who are like, yeah. I'm going to take my summer vacation and lose a bunch of weight. And then they come back in the fall and they're like, have boyfriends and cars and everything. Yeah. <laughs> that had no effect on me whatsoever. <laughs> well, now I'm thinking about also like thinking about Disney movies, like all the, like 
all the like Disney villains. Like, oh yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Thinking about like, I, I just think of like Ursula from The Little Mermaid. Mm-hmm. Um, or um, now I'm thinking of like books too. What was um, was it Matilda the Trunchbull? Oh yeah, the Trunchbull. Yeah, and that's yeah, and that's a big thing right now because there's a musical or a movie or something, and they put somebody in a fat suit to play Miss Trunchbull, even though. Yeah. And if you watch any kind of like kids show, I see this with the, the shows my kids watches. The bullies are almost always big kids. Yeah. They're mean or they're gross or they're like, they're just not good people for some reason. And that- now I'm thinking about Home Alone. Buzz, your girlfriend. Yeah. <laughs> woof, woof. yeah. Yeah. Right. So these are the stories. These are the stories. And if you think about the after, like the ugly duckling story, what happens? They lose weight. They lose their glasses, which is another thing that I've been thinking about lately. She's all that. Oh my God. Right. Turns around. So many. Yeah. So then this after happens and then you talk about how great your life is now. You get all the things you get the, the boyfriend or girlfriend, you get the popularity. I mean, in in the case of teens, it's different for adults, but you know, you get all the, the success and the love and the belonging and acceptance that this is supposed to have. And in order for that story to work, you have to, the drama of the story absolutely depends on setting up the before character as bad and the after character as good. And it completely collapses any nuance or complexity of what that middle journey is like and and accepting that this person was good and valid and worthy of love and success and happiness at every point in their story. Yes. And so what so- happens is the the character of before is particularly in the case of weight loss success stories, fat. And so that's where we get this idea that fat people are always a before story or an after story in waiting. They're just they 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 haven't reached their full potential yet but they carry all of those things that we associate with the before the unloved, the unwanted, the gross, the everything. And who wants that? Nobody wants to be a before no one is right. a before, but you certainly would do anything, put yourself through any amount of pain or suffering to get away from being that person. You yes. want to be the good person. So how do we even begin to change that narrative? I mean, I know, know a lot of good people out there trying. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there are a couple of storytelling strategies that have really helped me personally. And, and, you know, the more I see these stories, the easier it is for me to distance myself from them. So mm-hmm. you can start thinking about, or when you notice the stories in advertisement or on Fitzbo social accounts, whatever, just remind yourself that it's a story. Mm-hmm. Another thing that was really helpful for me in the early days was just an observation. You know, if you're at the gym or the grocery store or out in the world, you know, it's summertime, go outside and just watch some people mm-hmm. and, and take a, a good neutral look at every person that walks past you there. Nobody's in a magazine. Right? They're not the people who are sold to us as this is the right and good body. There's mm-hmm. all kinds of people everywhere. So that's a good, a good way to start thinking about it. The other one is to think of a person that you love and admire. And this sort of, this is, gets a little morbid, but I tend to think of people that I love who have died Uh and I imagine what's in their obituary. Did it say anything about their body size? Did it say about how many times they went to the gym? Do I remember them for that? No, none of that is part of it. And if you're going to tell the story of your life, if you're going to build this way of being, you know, is anybody going to remember that you, I don't know, only ate 1200 calories a day? Like, yeah. It's not a thing people remember. That's not the impact that you necessarily want to have on people, especially if it makes you cranky and yeah. gives the impression that that's, you know, I've heard, I've heard from so many people. It makes me so sad that, you know, they think of their, their mothers or their grandmothers or their aunts or cousins. And that is one of the primary memories they have. It's like, oh, they always criticized 
me or somebody else for how they looked, or they were always talking about the diet they were on. How much time and energy have we wasted bonding with people about how much we hate ourselves? Yeah. If nothing else, if you just give everyone around you, give yourself, give everyone around you the gift of not wasting time with that anymore. I, I walk away from diet talk. I don't even engage with yeah. it. It happens around me and I ignore it or I change the subject or I, I make a very specific point of giving that person compliments about anything else besides yeah. diet, exercise and body size. Like that's, you know, and it's just the way you change the story is by changing your habits around how you talk about yourself and others. Yes. A hundred percent. I was just, um, I was actually on, I was on a call with a colleague yesterday, just like talking about some professional stuff, but I was talking about how, when you meet somebody who's already done this work and we were specifically talking about, um, like community. And I know that's a big value for you too. Um, when you're able to be like in community with people who already see this stuff for what it is, and you're able to develop those friendships, I feel like you're able to like go so much deeper and have like a more meaningful connection more quickly because you're not wasting time on that stuff. Yeah. I think there's a lot, there's a bit of a social game that, uh, that I will say women particularly, but, um, that we play where we're sort of assessing what it's okay to talk about or not. And Mm -hmm. diet and exercise is always okay. (laughs) Like I can much to people's dismay when they talk to one of us and uh... right. I know it's very dissatisfying to talk to to someone who's doing this anti-diet work. Um, but it's just so much a part of our socialization that I, I mean, it still happens to me. Some people will come up and say, Oh, you've lost so much weight. And I don't give them the satisfaction of going, Oh, well, thank you. I just go, Oh, have I? Or I don't even know what I say anymore, but I just go, thanks, I guess. I don't know. It's yeah. just, just play it off. I don't, I don't give them anything back because it's not worth my time. Yeah. Reinforce this idea that I've worked so hard to eliminate from my life. Uh, so yeah, it's just a, bit, a little bit of like, is it okay? Are you the kind of person that I can talk to about how much I hate myself? And unfortunately, mm. it's no, I'm not that person, but there are plenty of other places. Uh, plenty of other places. I wish. And, I think it, and it starts with building that community. How, even if that's just one other person Yeah. That, you know that when you go to lunch, you don't have to play the game of, Oh, I really shouldn't. Or, Oh, well, I had a, a small lunch today. So I think I'm going to go, I'm going to splurge. Like, don't do that anymore. We don't need to do that. This, the, the world is on fire. Let's not waste any more time with that. Yes. And I, I think by like, by being that person, you know, it's, I, I was talking to another friend about this a little bit ago. There's a lot, the world is on fire and there's a lot of shit that we can't control. Um, but we can control what we're contributing to that conversation. I think it's, um, Kelly deals. Are you familiar with her? Yeah. Um, like feminist marketing expert person. Um, and she has this phrase where she says, we are the culture makers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. and, and I kind of love that because we can be, you know, you can't control like what it is, but like diet culture is what it is because we subscribe to it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there is a lot that we can't control about the narrative, you know, I mean, especially in medical settings where we're talking about obesity and who deserves what access and insurance coverage and whatever, like, yeah. I can't that the story that has impacted that system, I can't control, but mm-hmm. I can't be a safe person in my family and in my community to, to be that change. And you have no idea who you're impacting on a day-to-day basis. Could yep. be a coworker, could be a kid, a neighbor, somebody from your faith community, just people on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> we have social media accounts, but anybody who is posting on social media has an opportunity to show that these are my values and this is what I stand for. Mm-hmm. And it's always a goal of mine to be a, a culture maker, a, a safe person to, to test out some of these 
these things with. And, and it's because I've seen people I had no idea who were listening to me or paying yes. attention, coming back and saying, oh, I read something that you posted or the way that we had that last interaction really made me think differently about yeah. how I about myself. Like I had no idea that that's, that's what you were, you were taking away from that conversation. And, and it is something that happens, you know, it, it happens with time and it's, I can't stress enough how this is, it takes a long, long time in many cases to undo the harm that diet culture has done to each of us individually and each of us collectively. Like I said earlier, you know, the fact that I know how much I weigh today is absolutely an artifact from that. I still find myself making decisions. I posted a TikTok the other day about how I still, I am reminded of how in Weight Watchers, you weren't supposed to eat dried fruit every time I peel an orange because I feel a little sense of virtue about choosing a fresh orange over like a dried apricot or something. Yeah. But you know what there is, it's, it's interesting. There's that like residue from it and it takes a long time, um, to just sort of like unravel those rules or even kind of call yourself out and realizing that you're like still subscribing to something that maybe you don't believe in. Yeah anymore. And the dried fruit is a really great example. And I know, I know that I have examples of that too. And I'm trying to like, you know, think of them right yeah, now, I'm but trying I to catalog them because I didn't, you know, like my, my journey was, I, I started exercising. I was like, maybe this story doesn't fit anymore. And, you know, that's been a couple of years where I got really antagonistic about anybody who was losing weight. Like, mm-hmm. like try to do intentional weight loss and that's bad. And then I sort of mellowed out into a place of respecting the impact the story has on people and how, yeah. how much there is to lose when you give it up. Like you might lose a connection with friends or family because you don't have this thing to bond over anymore, or it forces you to question all the beliefs and the ways you've been living for a long time. Like that's, that's yeah. And you lose a lot of, in many cases, like privileges that are afforded oh, yeah. to you Absolutely. when, when you're thinner. For sure. And now I'm just starting to notice the ways that diet culture has impacted me. Like my family grew up and we had, we had these spoons that would measure how much uh, this feels like a very like nineties weight watchers thing, but we'd have special bowls and plates and spoons that would measure things. Yeah. And I find I get a little anxious if I don't know, or I can tell you still like how many calories are in an apple or how much fiber you're supposed to get a day. Like I still in some ways live by these rules or, or have this, this impact. So it's not the sort of thing that if you start on this path, it's going to completely, you know, delegitimize all of the stories, but it, it does get to a point where it, the noticing becomes neutral. Like, Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a story I learned a long time ago and it doesn't really fit anymore, but you know, it, it makes me feel this way, or maybe it is something that I still want to do. Like I, I like to notice you know, what portion sizes are and yeah, that's fine. That, that's and there's, an okay thing to do. You know, there are things also that I think have like value within that and exploring, um, like, I guess exploring gray areas, which is something that I'm always a proponent of. I was having a, a conversation with a client yesterday who, um, she got, she got those, uh, Zevias. Do you know what those are? Zevias. No. Zevia. It's a, it's a stevia sweetened soda. Oh, oh yes. Yes. Um, I know. That but is. she was okay. talking about the whole conversation stemmed from the fact that she ordered a bunch online and she was proud of herself because she picked up the whole like big case of like Costco size Zevias um, <laughs> and carried them up the stairs. And she was very proud of herself. And she was talking about, she described them as a soda of like all these different flavors of soda. And I was like, Ooh, I was like, who makes like multi-packs of fun, different flavors of sodas. Um, and she felt very apologetic about it. She's like, well, it's Zevia. She's like, it's Stevia sweetened, but like, it's okay because I really like the flavors and I like, and I'm like, it's okay. Like you're allowed. Yeah. You're allowed to have it. It's, uh, yeah, you know, sometimes it's, yeah. Like if they were, you know, the, the high octane sugar filled ones, there'd be a justification for that. But then there's a justification if it's low cal and it's like, right. And locale is a very nineties phrase. I just, really oh, no, it really <laughs> is like a locale, low fat. Um, like. but, but this, this apologizing or explaining or, yeah. like, oh, this is why I make the choices that I make. Like even that, the, 
that that's another artifact of diet culture. Like, I don't know uh-huh. if you've ever had to do an away in with anyone, but you know, it, it, some of my experiences at Weight Watchers were like, if you gained weight, you had to explain to the leader, like what happened that week? Or they would yeah. just ask like, what happened? It's like, well, and then you'd have to find a justification. Yeah. And it's like, it's just very weird. It's a weird, it's a weird thing to, to have learned about how to, you, you, it's like giving over control of your body and your feelings and, and everything that makes you, you and trying to relearn that now as an adult is like, wow, that's, that's a heavy lip. That's a lot of work that's behind yeah. it. So it is good to have someone like you who can be a safe person and be a buddy in that because so few people out in the world are unfortunately, you know, on board with this yet. It's, it's not always safe to go to, you know, your mom or your best friend and say like, Hey, actually I'm not thinking about my weight as much anymore. Or you don't have to justify that salad to me. Yeah. And it's like, that's one of the appreciate, one of the reasons why I appreciate people like you who like actually like research into stuff and look, look into like where these stories come from, because number one, I think it's really interesting. Um, but when we realize that they're just that they're a story, we realize that it's not just the way things are and that we can choose a new story to Mm -hmm. read, um, and to listen to, or to even write our own. Yep. Yep. Well, and I can give you, this is a great time to give you the, the very short version. And if (laughs) I don't know that anyone wants to read my dissertation, it is online where I go into this more in depth, but the, the short version of the tinfoil hat story is that there's a particular moment in American history, which is about 1917, which is the end of world war one when science and entertainment and nutrition sort of have this moment where, oh, and, and mass production. So industry, military science, they're, they're all together. And they, they, they're interested in the same question, which is how can we feed people in such a way that we can predict what happens to them? So military wants to know how many calories do soldiers need Uh to to do their work. Industry wants to know how big people are so they can make products in one, you know, uniform way. Uh-huh. And then Hollywood is coming along where we finally, for the first time are able to compare people. You know, we had photography before this moment, but we really didn't have a pop culture. Yeah. Show us Like on screen, what people look like in comparison to each other. Right. So, so we're trying to standardize a lot of things, but we're also seeing like what the ideal Hollywood body type is. Yeah. And now we can achieve it because we have a calorie and we can achieve it because dress sizes only come, you know, in a, in a certain size. Yeah. There was, there was a really popular diet book. Um, it was the first diet book called a key to the, um, I'm oh, sorry. It was called diet and health with key to the calories. Uh huh. And it basically said fat people are eating too much and it's impacting the war effort. So people, fat people should get together and talk about how to not be fat because they're taking nutrition out of soldiers' mouths. And the, and the author of the book called it the anti-Kaiser watch your weight club. And I believe that that is the idea, the social aspect of it and the calorie reduction aspect um, that influenced the creation of diet culture as a way to one standardize and two uh, mass produce the kind of person that would fit in society. Kate, my mind is blown. And can I just tell you, like, I'm not a super academic person, but I now want to like read your dissertation. And I also want to like, <laughs> I also want you to write a book about it. Yeah. I I've been thinking part of it is that I don't, it, it was so hard to put, cause I had to research a lot about the attitude toward fat people uh-huh. over history, right. Yeah. Like over time and how horrible it was. And I found something from the Chicago tribune. I know you're a, you're a Chicagoan yeah. so from the Chicago tribune around the time that my mom and her sisters would have been in their teens that basically talked about how horrible fat people are. And it ended up being 
a content marketing piece for Weight Watchers. They were going into blue collar communities in Chicago and where there was already an established a social club. Like, I don't know if your family was ever part of a bowling league or a church social or like any kind of club, like the Elks or the Moose or whatever. They were trying to mirror that social connection to establish the Weight Watchers centers. And they were doing that through blue collar neighborhoods in urban areas like Chicago. Wow. So this piece was from 1972. Weight Watchers started in 1968. So I could only imagine my my mom or my grandma, who were all, you know, avid, dedicated readers of the Tribune, seeing themselves and their family reflected in this horrible. I mean, and and I reference it in in the piece, but it's like, you know, the big jowled gargantuans are lumbering down the street. Like it has horrible language in it, and like that's what. I grew up believing about myself is that because ah. of my size and then my entire family, right? Like that we were all bad people because of this. And it takes a lot of energy. I mean, anybody doing anti-diet work, particularly multiple marginalized folks, mm-hmm. um, it takes a lot of personal mental, emotional resources just oh, yeah. to do this work. So I would love to, I would love to, and I, I thank you so much for letting me be on the podcast today because it, it shares this history. Yeah. Bit, and and I, I think I'm about ready to start digging back into it and uh, preview about what this book might be. Uh, it would be specifically about the ways that reading and writing have impacted our diet choices about our, you know, like our, our everyday. Like, yeah. how did, do, you, do you ever keep a food journal? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Do a little book research. Oh, yeah. Who oh, yeah. taught you how to write a food journal? Who taught me how? You know what? Um, honestly, I think my mom did, but like mm. she didn't do it consciously, which is very interesting, is interesting. Um, because I grew up with a mom who counted calories mm. um, and sometimes did Weight Watchers. But she, even though she never spoke to me and my sister about our bodies or doing that, like there was never any of that, I internalized it because I saw her little yellow piece of paper on the counter. Yeah. That's, that is how I learned. That's what mom does. That's what I do. Right. And I don't, we've talked a lot just, you know, in, in anti-diet community about how, how diet choices, you know, how diet culture, culture has impacted what we eat. Mm -hmm. We talk about how it's impacted how we exercise, but we haven't really talked about how it affects how we read and write stories about body size. So yeah. that's how I would take this research that I've done so far and put it into a new book. Well, no pressure, um, no pressure there, but if it, if it comes out, like sign me up, um, <laughs> Be the first what, on my tour, what it will, we'll add you to, uh, we'll, we'll add you to my book list. I just did an, an interview a couple of weeks ago, um, with somebody who was talking about like good, um, like anti-diet books to yeah. read. So we'll, uh, We'll, we'll put you on that list and fantastic and get some stories. Um, what else do you want us to know? Where can the people find you? What are you up to these days? So the people can find me on social at Dr. Kate Brown on Instagram. And I just started a new TikTok experiment and it's called Kate ate a steak, which is based on a food journal. I kept, um, in graduate school to try and like, it was a poetry journal. Cause uh-huh. I wanted to get out of the usual, like I ate this much and it has this many calories food journaling style. And I just like the way it sounds and TikTok is a big experiment. So Kate ate a steak. Okay. Um, but one of the things I'm working on now is thinking about how those before and after stories impact other areas of wellness. And I'm particularly interested in before and after stories about sobriety mm, Okay. and, and alcohol drinking. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm almost a year sober and I found that similarly to my moving away from diet culture, recovery culture, sobriety culture is also filled with before and after stories where your sobriety is that point between you were a bad person when you were drinking, but you're a good person now that you stopped drinking. And I think those stories uh, also carry the way that that story is told without nuance can also be harmful. So I'm kind of expanding what before and after stories mean. And I'm, I'm noticing other places where they pop up and actually affect our wellness. 
I love it. I can't wait to hear more about it. It's really interesting the connections that you're able to make between things that you might not have thought that there was that there was something there. So yeah, thank you, Kate. This was this was wonderful. I feel like I could talk to you all day. You have such a a wealth of interesting information that the people really need to know. So thank you. Thanks, Jenna. An absolute pleasure. Hey. All right. We'll talk soon. Kate is so fun to talk to. I hope that you found that episode enlightening and mind-blowing and just as enjoyable as I did. I will link to all of Kate's info in the show notes. And if you like this episode, if you like this podcast, if you want stories like this to continue to be told and to reach more people, go to Apple Podcasts right now. Leave me a five-star rating and review. It's quick and easy, and that'll help get this message out there. Additionally, if you need a little extra push to do it, I want to remind you that at the end of the summer, I'm going to be doing a drawing for a giveaway if you leave me a review. The winner will receive a book from episode number 27. If you missed that, it's called Beyond Health at Every Size, Must Read Books to Deepen Your Body Acceptance Journey with Jen Radke. On that episode, we talk about books, stories that need to be told that will help you start to view these things differently and start to see things from the perspectives of people who are feel different than you and people who make you feel seen because they're very similar to you. So I'll be giving one of those away in a drawing. Get excited. Go leave me a five-star rating and review right now, real quick. Go do it. Okay. Um, and then when you're done, have a wonderful rest of your day, a great week, and we'll talk soon. Thanks again for tuning in to Tough Cookie Talks. I'm so glad you're here. If you want to learn more about me and how we can work together, visit my website, itsjennaj.com or follow and tag me on Instagram at itsjennaj. I would love to hear from you. If you liked this episode and want to hear more, make sure that you click subscribe and follow along so that you don't miss a single show. Then take a moment and leave me a five-star rating and review so we can help this podcast and this message reach even more people. Have a great week and we'll talk soon.